You're listening to the Ones Ready Podcast, a team of Air Force Special Operators forged in combat with over 70 years of combined operational experience, as well as a decade of selection instructor experience. If you're tired of settling and you want to do something you truly believe in, you're in the right place. Now here's your favorite CCT personality, JTAC extraordinaire, embracer of the ridiculous face, and like the shortest operator you'll ever meet, Peaches. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ones Ready Podcast. You're in the team room with us. We have a very special guest today, Mr. Dan Schilling. Um, you probably are all tracking him if you have followed anything regarding Air Force Special Warfare, but we got him on the podcast today. Dan, thanks for coming. I will. We will hit you here in a second. We just need to do a quick sponsor, uh, drinkhoist.com. Promo code ones ready. If you need to stay hydrated during your workouts, during a hike, during a, a elk hunting season, whatever you got to do, maybe it's jujitsu with Aaron, use moist, or maybe you're in San Antonio sweating still when it's, you know, about to be November. Um, but drink hoist. It'll keep you hydrated, keep you going and keep you on top of your game. Yeah. All right. Absolutely. Shout out to hoist. Thanks. Yeah. Love you. 100%. Guys. So, and, and I'm, it's funny because I'm watching, we were just having a conversation about dogs and cats. Yeah. I'm watching mm-hmm. my dog go crazy, but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Standard. Schilling, Dan, really uh, honored that you joined us and you agreed to come on. You've got a rich history within special tactics, um, going all the way back to, you know, Gothic Serpent, Operation Gothic Serpent in um, Somalia. So love to hear a little bit about that, a little bit about you, maybe some uh, some kind of cool guy stories, and then we'll just take it from there. Can do. Listen, guys, it's always a pleasure. I appreciate the work that you're doing. I think you guys do a fantastic service to a community that's overlooked, which, of course, I'm lined up with that because that's one of my most recent books. But uh, I think it's wonderful what you're doing, so I'm just happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure, pleasure uh, having you on, man. I'm, I, what, I wouldn't, uh, I'd, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't a little bit starstruck. So it's not often that I get to talk to. I mean, I've, I obviously read Alone at Dawn, and you know, I, I started you know, just to get my head wrapped around your extensive career and history and the stuff that you like to do. I was, I was laughing with the guys. I was like, you know, we've had, we've had guests cancel or push timelines, but uh, you have had the best excuse ever to push the, the podcast to today you're like yeah i gotta go free fly on the mountain the weather's really nice i'm like what is he even talking about i always uh i always make the joke that if i ever die in an extreme sport that it was i, I was framed like somebody killed me like oh you know aaron died wingsuiting no he did not aaron doesn't do any of that stuff aaron got too close to the truth that's what happened and he had to the conspiracy theory side of Aaron's life finally caught up to him and, and he died. Aaron died a uh, cave spelunking. No, he did not. Aaron got too close to the truth. That's the, that's the running joke. What were you, uh, what were you doing yesterday and how well, long man, have you had I that? Hobby? that. You guys, I, uh, you know, it was, that was a true request that the, the, the wind conditions and the snow on the mountain converged to make a brilliant day for speed flying. And so I, I would not I don't even know what speed flying is. I have no clue. I'm like, you could have said, you could have said anything. Speed flying. Okay. I got no clue. Well, so yeah, I mean, for me, because I'm, I'm traveling, I'm giving speeches a lot right now. I'm still doing some book tour stuff with my current book. And I've been getting a lot of invites to, to deliver keynotes on resilience, which is this, uh, I think it's a really important topic. And so I, my schedule's not my own. And so I got home from a, a charity event in Texas and uh, man, it's been snowing here while I was gone and the winds dropped off. So for me, speed flying is basically 
You take a parachute and a pair of skis, you drag them to the top of the mountain, you slap them on, you lay them out, you ski fast, and the next thing you know, you're flying. And so for me, speed flying, uh, and really technically it's called speed riding if you got skis on, but I don't want to bog down on that. It's basically combining, you know, flying a parachute uh, over the terrain with a pair of skis on. And uh, I appreciate you guys doing that for me because I can't tell you how many days I'm like, oh, it's perfect conditions and I've got to do whatever, something. And it was I worth the story to that. say yes. You know what I mean? Like it, like there's no way, like uh, you have to say yes, just so you get to tell the story. Like, so that at the end we could just be like, yeah. And then he had a great day speed flying. So was yeah, we were happy to flying. do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that, that whole, that? that whole story right there just shows the kind of people like that we're looking for. Like, you know, the brochures, everybody's loves the skydiving, the riding motorcycles and, and all that kind of stuff. But like, uh, for a lot of people to include yourself, that doesn't stop. I mean, you, you're doing this. I mean, we would never want to deny you that, right? I mean, <laughs> Hey, given the chance, if I was in Utah and I knew what I was doing, it wouldn't kill myself. I'd probably be all over that too. <laughs> well, it's, you know, I think you, you make a point, Jared, there's a, there's an evolution for people who pursue a lot of sports. You can call them fringe or extreme or some other, you know, adjective, whatever. But I think as you go through life and you, if you're one of those kind of people and you push your limits and you're looking for things to push your limits further, I don't mean like more death defying feats, which is what really happens in a lot of extreme sports. If you want to make a name now, you've got to do something that has such a narrow margin for you know mistakes or failure um, versus success. But I think you evolve over time. And for me, I got on skydive anymore. I think skydiving is kind of boring. And so I stopped skydiving because it's very routine. And so, you know, I, I, I'm not taking away from it. It's a great sport. There's a lot of discipline. There's a lot of, there's, you know, perfection in the pursuit of that, those sorts of things. But man, I think you evolve over time. And for me, I've evolved away from some of these other things. And I just sort of naturally have glommed on to things that put me in the mountain. And so I ski a lot. You know, if I don't ski a hundred days a year, I'm pissed off. And I, I speed fly, you know, kind of year round in the summertime. So I out skis. But if I'm not doing that, I'm on the mountain. And it's just a way of, I think, not just evolving, but it allows you to redefine yourself. And I'm a big believer in, in, in redefining yourself as part of your evolution. That's why I became a writer. That's a mate. That's probably the. I'm glad to be here. It was like uh, I get to I got to watch you just craft that response. Like I'm just I'm just happy to be here. Like that pursuit of extreme sports and that willingness to evolve and constantly reinvent yourself. I think we all feel that. And and if you go back, you know how many we talked about your involvement in Gothic Serpent or, or colloquially colloquially known as a uh, Black Hawk Down, the Black Hawk Down environment. And you know you played an active role in that. And I mean I'd love to I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear about those experiences, but more so as, as you know, we talk about your evolution and how you became a writer, you know, take us all the way back to when you were you know, a humble combat controller, just doing some of the, the nation's hardest missions. Because I think, you know, a lot of people forget that you have, you know, from, from your writing and, and when you read, um, you know, your books, you can tell, like, you know what you're talking about. Like there is no misstep in those simple little semantic things or the way that things are described or sometimes the way that things are laid out chronologically us in the military, especially us in the soft environment. I read that book and I just fall right into like, I'm, I'm in the syntax. I feel like I'm in rhythm with the writing, but that all came from you, you know, starting your, your life out in AFSPEC war. So like, I'd, I'd love to hear some, some stories about that. If you got time. 
I, but I think it's one of the things I can bring to the subjects I like to write about. So, you know, I mean, I've written a couple of books about special ops and, and, and my experiences with Zelona Don and whatnot. And, you know, in my current books, really how not to get robbed, raped or carjacked using CIA or special operations and even law enforcement tactics. But I think one of the things that helps me with those types of subjects, which I am really fascinated by, and the, and the book I'm actually writing now is on resilience and happiness, which I think are are, are, are greater steps in our evolution to what we should aspire to be and uh, or or have as attributes. But I, to your point, uh, Aaron, I think for me, what separates me from some other really great writers like Simon Sinek or Malcolm Gladwell, who are really great writers and they write about powerful topics, but they're professional observers. You know, they, 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 they synthesize other people's concepts or experiences and bring them to the masses. And I think there's a lot of value in that. But I think I'm differentiated from guys like that because, man, I've done this stuff and I still do this stuff. And it's part of, it's it's in my fabric. It's part of the community I still feel I belong to. And I hopefully bring those uh, to the page and then the reader can take them away with, the you know, not just something that has value, but hopefully it's a good story. That's the job of a writer is to impart knowledge, but I think it's also to entertain people. Right. You're a professional participant, right? You have that, yeah. that credibility and that background to, to bring all this. And I, I'm, I know what I'm curious about is, is I know we're, we're talking about you as a combat controller, but before that, so like, I think it's easy for people to look at you when you're writing these books and doing all these things. And I'm one of those creepy guys that like, likes all your Facebook posts of you flying down the mountain. I, I, you know, on the down low stock you a little big bit. Fan. Big fan of all the yeah. <laughs> big fan of internet stocking. You know what it's, I mean? It's good to see Utah, see the homeland and all that other stuff as well. Um, but like before you even joined the Air Force and all that other stuff, was all of this part of who you are? Because I think it's easy for us to be like, oh, you're a, a former seven two four operator and it's easy for you to do all these things. I think people make that that leap. But you know, seventeen year old Dan Schilling, what was the makeup of that person and what led to eventually uh, being the person that you are, I think it's a really good observation, Trenton, because I, I think nobody starts out with knowing who they are and or or really understanding your potential uh, or or your ability to overcome things or be successful. And I think they're not foregone conclusions. But the key, of course, is if it doesn't work one way, you figure out another way. One of my mottos is there's always a way. If this doesn't work, Hell, that's just not the way. And so, you know, when I was 17, man, I was I was a really energetic person. And I think actually finding my way into the military and then further, because I started out as a grunt. I was just a paratrooper infantry guy. Um, and then I found my way into special ops. I think that journey is this really wonderful journey of discovery that allows you to, to, to find your way in the world. And I think that's really the value of, of these stories in retrospect, because after you're successful, so say I've been a successful special ops guy and maybe I'm a successful writer now, those are those are the happy endings. It's, it's how you get there and how you overcome those things and continue to go on. And of course the secret is, and you guys know this because you, you advocate for it for aspirational people who wanna get into special warfare or any service, is you, you have to just not quit. And it's as simple and as hard as that. And so for me at 17, man, I didn't even know what I wanted. I joined the military on a fluke because the girl I was dating at 
my chest, grabbed my heart, wrenched it out, and crushed it in her hand. Shout and out to all my, the heartbreak my, out there. <laughs> Shout out to everybody who had their heart broken and was like, I'm out of here. So first of all, there's a lot of swole dudes walking around in here just eating chicken and rice by themselves at home at night, <laughs> crying over some girl. But you, you leverage that into a astounding military career. So shout out to whoever that was. Do you know who that girl, do you ever talk to that girl? Do you know who she is? Yeah, we, uh, do you we keep in touch for, for years. She reconnected with me through writing. Facebook. Actually, she's married and got a PhD and moved on with life. And like, it's oh, okay, all good. good. That's just okay. young people's stuff. Well, hey, man. Like, I don't, I don't know who that is, but you, you keep your, your claws out of Mr. Schilling. Okay. I've had enough. We're uh, friends now. And I just want to say that one time is enough. You, you've caused enough damage. No, actually, think about it. And this is true for anybody who's going through a hard time and heartache. And this goes back to resilience. I was crushed. And, uh, you know, something, now I'm not. I've overcome that. I don't, you know, I'd say we're friendly. Uh, hadn't talked to her in 35 years. We reconnected and exchanged a couple of emails, laughed about the past. Like, that's the that's that's resilience. That is why you have to try and move forward in life, even when it's dark. Find someone who can support you. Move, find a mentor, you know, find some goal you really want to do with life. Those are the things that allow you to go on. For me, I met an army recruiter who said, we'll pay you to jump out of airplanes. And it had never occurred to me in my life to jump out of an airplane, surprisingly. And I realized I'm in. That's good enough. I don't have to do or know anything else. I just want to jump out of planes yeah. and carry a gun. Sounds cool. Right. That's how they got you. That's, yeah, they got, that's how they got, they got, that's how they got it. Hook, line, well, and, and then, singer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then you said you were a, a, an airborne infantry guy. So where did you where did you start out? So you, we're going to jump out of planes. We're going to carry a gun. Where, where, where was the first so stop? I ended up in a Pathfinder platoon, which, of course, okay. historically is the predecessor to all combat yeah. control if you go Absolutely. back to World War II. But so for me, I, I just dug that. And uh, I was having fun. I was a corporal. I made, I mean, I made corporal. You know, I'm humping a 60 in a ruck, you know, and life couldn't get any better. And then I went TDY with some combat controllers. This is in the mid eighties, mind you. Here and we so go. This is, we're doing oh man. Blackout landings with MVGs, which I had never seen MVGs as a paratrooper grunt in the eighties. And uh, man, we were, I saw this whole nother world and I'll never remember. I'll never forget the guy who got me into combat control. His name is Pete Neal and he, he's dead now, but uh, he said, listen, we're, we're halo. We're scuba. And I was like, man, holy shit. And then he said, we also get pro pay. And I said, I remember this conversation. Now we're talking. Now you're speaking my language. How much is this pro pay you speak of? Well, I didn't even know what it is. I said, what's pro pay? And he goes, it's cool guy pay. And I went realized yet again, I'm in. I want to be a combat controller because I want cool guy pay. Who is and this I, combat controller? Because he did the perfect pitch. Recruiters take note. Like, this is how you do it. Like, <laughs> hey, not only are you going to get pro pay, it's for cool guy pay. Like, this guy absolutely finessed you. And, uh, Kudos to but him. He just told, I mean, he just laid it out. He said, this is who we are and what we do. And no one knew about combat control back then. And I think like a lot of guys, I accidentally tripped my way into combat control because you had to really seek it out. And I think the value of, of my book, Alona Don, and, and the movie we're going to make about it, which is this $100 million film, is going to put that community on the map in a way that U.S. Navy SEALs, the movie, put seals on the map before that movie came out people kind of knew what seals were maybe vietnam this or that but when that movie hit pow 
everybody that was really it. wanted to be a seal. Charlie, and, she, and I, absolutely. My job is to do that. I, I've been waiting for that pager to go off at a wedding. I'm going to a wedding. There's going to be a bunch of PJs there at the end of uh, at the end of October. If we don't get a page that there's a national mission going off, and I have to jump off of a bridge. Listen, he left in the middle of his wedding. The whole team's pagers went off. Charlie Sheen was done. He was like, I got to go. Like, I want that to happen really bad. But you're, you're totally right. Like, every team guy in the world remembers watching that movie, and it really did blow the seals up at, at the time. That was the start of the, you know, kind of the ubiquitousness uh, of the teams in the, in the but public they eye. They never looked back. Culturally, they never looked back. And, and I think the Air Force's detriment, and I, and I gripe to senior leaders of the Air Force, you know, people like SECAF, when I can corner those people, because I, I, I get access to those kind of folks now sometimes. I, I, I bash on them or I beat them up because, listen, the Air Force is the most powerful force ever created on planet Earth. And the reason that's true is they own two-thirds of the nuclear triad, the U.S. nuclear triad. The Navy gets a paltry third. We don't even trust the Army with nuclear weapons anymore. And so by virtue of yeah. owning that power and the responsibility to wield it or, or not wield it, the Air Force is the most powerful thing ever created by humanity, but they don't act like it. And that pisses me off, frankly speaking. Get it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there's some there's some humility involved in that, but no, yeah. I, I think I think we have at least in terms of the grand aspect. Where I think uh, pararescue has done it better than combat control, and and you know, special reconnaissance is kind of new on the map. But like, we have not done a great job as a special tactics entity. Um, messaging, promoting, recruiting, and, and we have gotten better. Absolutely have gotten better. Um, and the last, you know, 20 years of, of conflict in Afghanistan and Iraq and stuff has helped. It has absolutely helped AFSOC really, you know, put itself on the map. But even now, our messaging is still not great. Um, but it's a difficult message. Pararescue is easy. Save the good guys from the bad guys under duress. Yep. Pow. That's a bullet that you can get behind. No, you're right. When, yep. you say, when you say, you know, I integrate four-dimensional space to one point on the earth because I can wield all these things and choreograph the symphony of death and, you know, all the things that a combat controller does. And I, and I can self-establish an informal network amongst other combat controllers on the battlefield that has no formal architecture or planning in the process, but by virtue of doing it, it saves the day. It's a very difficult thing to message, and it's one of our problems. And, you know, the war, now that it's over, advanced that for combat control for the first time ever in its history. I think the challenge is really this, guys. What does combat control in particular? Pararescue is the same. Bad guys are going to get in peril. We're going to go save them, even if it's Thai soccer kids in a cave. But but for combat control, the question is, what is the evolution of that unique capability, which I, you know, I talk about it in the book and I talk about it regularly when I speak. Listen, that makes combat controllers the deadliest individuals to walk on the battlefield in the history of human warfare, because they can kill more bad guys with precision than anybody else on a battlefield. So what does that look like going forward? Because the next war is not going to be Afghanistan, where we can do anything we want in three-dimensional airspace, it's going to be near-peer challenges. How do you fight that war is really the, the challenge. And these are the right guys to do it, because it's not going to be about a gunfight with SEALs, and it's not going to be about indigenous 
uh, you know, counterinsurgency with Green Berets. It's going to be about precision air power and, and, and dominance in that space, but also doing it on the ground. And you can't just do it with drones and, and, and spirit bombers or B-52s or strike eagles. It's going to be that person on the ground fusing intelligence in the battle space and that air power and space power. And to me, that's a combat controller. If the leaders can get behind a vision and sometimes our leaders suffer with that. Yeah, you get, yeah, you got it. Yeah. I'm in, I I, I don't even know what, I'm not even sure if I'm going to be a PJ after this podcast. I might just have to go over to control. Oh, come on. Now, I, 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 <laughs> obviously bought into exactly what you're saying and you know we saw this i just got back off my last deployment that evolution is happening and we're we're finding things and and one of the statements that i like to use is you know we need and i say we as all the career fields i think we all need to kind of answer this question is we need to be able to stand up in the joint environment and look at everybody and say we do this better than anybody else this is a gold standard we can only provide this capability we can train you to to look like it you know sure we can train you in some of our ttps and stuff but we and only we provide this capability and combat control, I think, has the biggest answer to that question of not only do we have this capability, but nobody else can provide you with this level of expertise going forward. It's us and us alone, and we can provide that in a joint environment to everybody. Um, I think it's a big deal. I think it's a big inflection point, but I totally hear what you're saying, and I, I think you're right. Well, and Aaron, to, to your point, and how you even phrased this was, we need to stand up in front of the joint environment. And you know what, That when you start with that phrase to begin your sentence, it goes back to the core problem for the Air Force, which is you shouldn't have to try and say it. You already are that capability. You already are the world's most powerful force. You already do have the greatest global reach anywhere in the world of any military uh, and any service of any military. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a partial problem of messaging. And it's also, and we could bog down on this and I want to, how we develop leaders in the Air Force is different than how we develop leaders in the Army or the Navy. And, it, and we do that less well in that joint environment. It works fine inside the Air Force, you know, Air Force fighter pilot commanders and missile people and Space Force and the things that we've done, but we don't develop those leaders in the joint world the same way, with the exception of special warfare. There's a reason why... Mike Martin is the commander of SOC Corps today as a two-star judge. He came up as a special warfare, special tactics guy during the war, and he has the ability to walk into a room with a SEAL commander and an Army commander, whether it's Delta Force or wherever, and go toe-to-toe. And that makes him an anomaly in the Air Force. But that the Air Force has finally, to its credit, I would say, recognized the value of these kind of guys. We now have three general officers that are special tactics officers never happened before and they are working in roles that are critical to to the air force and AFSOC. the a3 for AFSOC is a two-star general wolf davidson it's another buddy of mine and these guys are they are crushing it and the air force recognizes it but they're not developing enough of it. and i think it would be a disservice to the air force that in the, this post-war period, which is what we're doing, this is like post-Vietnam, there's going to be a paring down of forces, Air Force Special Operations Command, Special Warfare and Special Tactics in particular are going to be targets for force reduction because they're not going to think the big powers that be that make their decisions based on budgets are going to look at these as cost-saving measures. And that would be unfortunate because the Air Force needs this type of leadership expertise, both at the chief level and at the senior officer level. 
But it takes time to grow those general officers. So, you know, you mentioned three, and that's why it's important that, you know, guys like Colonel Allen, um, you know, uh, Colonel Allison Black, like these extremely influential, intelligent, um, I mean, probably Colonel Daniels is even going to be on a track to be a GO. I mean, when you talk to, you know, people like, and I'll just use Mike Martin, or General Mike Martin, for example, like, I mean, he, he knows, and I don't know how he does it. I really don't. Like, just to explain to everybody the kind of the, the mental level that these folks operate at. Like, General Martin knows an ungodly amount of people, right? But, and he doesn't know me extremely well. Like, we've, you know, hung out a couple times, but he, he knows, you know, I have a wife. He knows that I have two kids. He knows generally the ages of the kids. He knows my prior assignments. Like, I, and, and when I talk to him, right, when I run into him, it's, hey, how's, you know, how are the kids doing? What? They must be in what? High school now? Yeah. I mean, it's just, and it, and he does it and I can see him do it with everybody. And it, it, it's incredible. So the, the, the frequency or the bandwidth that some of these folks operate at and, you know, Colonel Black's the same way, Colonel Allen, Colonel Daniels. Like, so if we, and it just, like I said, it takes time to grow with these general officers. And I think ASOC and SOCOM and the, really the, the international um, soft enterprise recognizes it, which is why, you know, these folks are going into these key positions now. I mean, to be this, it's, it's amazing to see. And I, and I'm, I'm excited to see where, where the next 10 years takes us. Well, and you, you know, to your point, Jared, you know, General Martin was 30 years in the making, right? He's been in forever. And, uh, you know, and, and Colonel Black, who's another, you know, and for, to the listeners who don't know, you know, it's the angel of death. And I don't really know her. In fact, I think we've met once. She probably doesn't know who I am. But but she, you know, there's another one of these amazing senior leaders. And I think this is one of the powerful aspects that AFSOC has as an advantage over other special operations service components. Our ability to integrate someone with the expertise, but the different perspective of Colonel Black, because for no other reason that she's female, she's a, another high performing person. She's destined for GO, just like some of these other folks we're talking about. But the ability to integrate those kind of people into and get that diversity into your force is an advantage that I think the Air Force has. And I think we need to continue to promote that type of advantage um, because you know what? In a battlefield, nothing is symmetrical, man. You have to be thinking differently than what you've done for the last 20 years. Our trap's going to be fall back into, well, we need another special ops war because we're so badass at special ops. Special ops is here to integrate into greater strategy and greater values for the nation. And um, the last war was a 20-year special ops war. We're not going to get that again, not for another 30, 40 years. It's going to be other stuff. You need to think more like Cold War. How do you contain and engage with the Chinese? How do you thwart Russians, because Russians are just, as a as a centralized government, are nothing but bullies. Vladimir Putin is just here to try and steamroll people because they're not a major player in the battlefield or in, in you know, the world order economically. Russia is a secondary power, but it carries a disproportionate influence in certain spheres. So you have to be able to contain them. How you do that is not strictly special ops. It's 
it's joint, you know, it's, it's special ops, uh, suppression of aerial defense and those kinds of things, the kind of stuff that you have to do that where you can't just run around the battlefield, and do whatever you want, which is what we've been doing for 20 years. Right. And you're starting to see those echoes too, with the guard and the reserve. There's a lot of people moving to the guard and the reserve. Cause there is going to be that pairing down of forces. There is going to be the pairing down of deployments and all those other things. And the guard and the reserve as always is there to present, you know, the ready force that, that has that minimum readiness level. Like if, if they need to backfill for active duty, but you're seeing a big move towards the guard and the reserve now. So I think all those demand signals are there. And a lot of the stuff I know it keep, I know it keeps peaches up at night. I know that we focus on it a lot of the two, two, but you know, where are we going? How are we leaning forward in this? Like, how are we getting out of those old paradigms? Like everything is not direct action cordon call out. Like we're, you know, talking to command chief Olson, talking to command chief Smith, talking to some of these other really, really big brain guys. They're, they're forecasting some really, really tough stuff. And uh, we're starting to see the ripples of it kind of already in, in the larger force presentation as a whole too. That's right. It's what's going to happen. I'm a huge fan of the garden reserve. You know, it used to get a bad rap before the war, before 9-11. I think it got a bad rap. And, you know, I mean, I was fortunate enough to create a, a guard special tactics squadron off of a beer stained napkin over a bunch of beers one night in a bar. And boom, two years later, we got a squadron. So sometimes those cliches can work, man. And sometimes drinking alcohol is helpful, but not always. At any rate, you know, I think that I think the movement back to disclaimer, the guard, drink responsibly. But hey, a lot of problems do get solved. We we used to say in Vegas, man. You know, you'd solve your problems in two places: the bar and the gym. Uh, see, I'd add I I add the mountain to that. I yeah. solved my problems on the mountain, like that. That's my place. But you know what? To your point, though, in all seriousness, you have to find a place where you can solve problems. If you're an individual and you're trying to accomplish a goal, whether it's get into special ops or make the next rank and become a leader in special ops and do those things. You have to have a thing that allows you to get white space and be creative and make sense of things and solve the problems in your life. And if it's the gym, that's great. If it's on the mountain, that's much better in my opinion. If it's in the bar, you're only going to get halfway there because I think drinking a lot of alcohol never actually solves the problems we think it does. And um, I think it's a good way to decompress with your teammates and, and solve certain problems, but it stops at a certain point because, you know, you need to really spend time thinking. And here's something that doesn't sound sexy, but I, I advocate for it all the time. You need to read stuff. You need to read about life. And it doesn't have to be special ops. Like I don't read military books. I did that for 31 years, but I read books like Breath by, you know, uh, James Nestor, I, I'm butchering his name, which really taught me how to rethink think and approach my breathing in my fifties, you know, it doesn't matter what it is you're trying to, to do in life. The more you read about things that are different from you or the perspectives you hadn't considered before back to Simon Sinek or Malcolm Gladwell, they write really brilliant books about concepts that have value to you spend time reading. Cause if you read stuff, you'll think about it. And if it's, and I mean, read, good books. You know, I don't mean Harlequin romance. I mean, stuff that has value. You do that, it starts to creep into your life. And I would say that's how you get a guy like Mike Martin. Mike Martin, I'm sure, is an intellectually curious individual. I actually, I know he is. He's a friend of mine. And um, and he's one of the best bosses I ever had in the military. You can't tell him I said that, but, you know, <laughs> never he know. actually was. I'm and, sure he's uh, an avid listener. 
Yeah, don't yeah. worry. Yeah. What's uh, up, General he? Martin? So, yeah, I, no, don't worry. I, I highly doubt he's ever <laughs> Absolutely not, probably. <laughs> I, I, I don't have any reason to bet on this, but I'll go ahead and bet that he's not. <laughs> no, I think he's busy. He quite possibly could be busy as the commander of Special Operations Korea, which is an existential problem. And there's another problem that you have to get behind where special ops is only part of the equation. And as we go into this next era, post-Vietnam, you know, post-9-11 war, the, uh, the parallels there, what does the U.S. do? What did the U.S. do in 1976? You know, in the bicentennial, two years out of Vietnam, what did the world look like to the U.S. and the world on the heels of a war like that? That's a very calm, I think that's a, I think that's a, a valid parallel for where we are now. And I know we're sort of getting off topic of the kind of things we normally talk about. And this is the problem with inviting me on your show because you can end up 90 degrees to port. But the bottom line is, you know, we should think about that in that context because what lessons did we fail to learn then? I would say number one was we hollowed out our special operations force after Vietnam. It was a shell of a capability. I mean, Air Force, Navy, it didn't matter. We should not do that this time. I'm speaking to you, commanders of, you know, AFSOC and SOCOM and, you know, DOD. But I think one of the problems that we're running into right now, or one of the, the solutions is that um, that intellectual curiosity, or or I think being part of the Air Force, because I think that AFSOC has not really been part of the Air Force necessarily for the last 20 years. Um, and, and I think there's this, you know, sometimes looking over the fence from their side, they think we think we're too special to play with them, you know. And sometimes we look over on their side of the fence and uh, we see what we see. Uh, but I think that's what that's what you're talking about. I think we need to um, integrate with them and talk to them more because that's where the problem is, is the lines of communication are not always clear. I mean, I've run into it on previous deployments uh, where you reach out to the uh, conventional folks and you're like, hey, and you try to talk to them. And they're like, no, we don't do what you do. You yeah. do your thing and we do our thing. Yeah. Uh, so I think as we move forward, trying to get the entire special warfare community back on board with being Air Force first, and then moving forward in that way. Because when we talk about access and emplacement and all that stuff in the near peer environment, like you said, we're going to need them. And uh, you know, if, if if we don't integrate and educate and communicate, we're never going to solve those problems. We're not going to be useful moving forward. So we have to provide the value for them uh, that makes it clear, uh, so that we can get after the next mission. Just well, one. and you know, it's funny because placement and access is not an AFSC specific thing. It doesn't matter whether you're special reconnaissance, PJ, combat controller, TACP, steel or green beret. It doesn't make any difference. Placement and access is about having placement in that environment that you're seeking and the access to even do so. And of course, I would always say the authority to pull that mission off. But to your point, actually, I think there's this other valuable um space that AFSOC occupies that separates it from the other MAGCOMs in the Air Force. And that is this, whether you're ACC or AMC or whatever, or the other Cs that are doing their thing, they are strictly an Air Force entity. AFSOC enjoys a certain amount of independence because it's funded from SOCOM and it has a separate sort of chain of command for their integration for the joint special operations world that separates them. So Jim Slipe as the current AFSOC commander is a guy who enjoys a certain independence from the other, like the ACC commander. So his perspective, because he works up this dual sort of separate chain of command into DOD, he, he gets the advantage of having two. 
Not just that it's separate. They're two. He's got, he works up through the chief of staff of the Air Force for funding and all these things. But he does the same thing through SOCOM. Both come back to the Secretary of Defense at the top of that pyramid. That's what makes AFSOC unique in the Air Force. And I think it's one of the reasons why it's come to be valued uh, more significantly in the last 20 years. Plus, it's the, one, the force that's most engaged in you know, the kind of war we've been fighting. But the fact is, that guy or girl, whoever runs AFSOC in the future, is a person who has a very different and non-insular type of perspective. And the Air Force should value that more. I say this as an objective outsider now because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm outside of that. I was never destined to be a general. Getting out as lieutenant colonel was probably the right rank for me because I did not do rank very well, as a lot of people can tell you. Well, and to your point, you know, and, and talking about getting those streams to cross, as it were, you know, we were just talking to Command Chief Olson and uh, Command Chief Thompson, the ATC, you know, Command Chief Olson and General Slife were in our building just recently. So we got to, to spend some good time with them and, and get some good FaceTime and hear from the boss directly. And then on the podcast, we just had on the AETC command team. And it was funny, some of the things that were were similar between everybody. Now, granted, the command team does have special ops background. So there's those, you know, those threads are, are the same you know, there, but, you know, especially chief Thompson was talking about, Hey, you know, we need to train and grow these leaders inside of AFSOC with the intent to put them out to the regular air force to get them out and, and spread the love as it were with those leadership things. You know, the regular air force does a good job of seeking input from SMEs and in the, in the vein of getting AFSOC leadership out there and becoming part of the air force, like go out, steal their best practices, bring them back to AFSOC and give them, you know, a taste of, of what our enlisted and officer leadership really looks like on this side of the fence. Cause I think it's, it's really beneficial. It's a good job. I totally stole that idea directly from chief Thompson who said it on the podcast, but it's a, it's a fantastic idea. And if you look at, you know, chief master sergeant, uh, Colon Lopez, if you look at CZ and, and his silver bullets for leadership and his carnivore leadership and those things are, are, you know, circulated around. They were on every wall of every team room and then they were at every PME, you know, the last couple of PMEs that I've went to, that's been part of the reading list. So people want that sort of leadership and want that sort of influence from AFSOC. And I think AFSOC is moving that way. I can definitely see us out in a lot of different other um, positions inside the Air Force and, and in the joint environment. You know, Peaches just got out of, he's well-versed at working at those, those halls down in Tampa. And we all have friends that are working in those, uh, those assignments. And I think, uh, AFSOC really is, you know, the SME on the block for a lot of the things that we're talking about and especially where we're going most importantly. Yeah. Because it's not, you know, like the term you use sharing the love. It's the fact that it'll make the air force a more capable force. No one has more credible combat experience in the air force than the people from AFSOC. Whether you're flying CB-22s, you know, doing maintenance for AC-130 gunships, or you're a combat controller, you've been in a war in a way that the rest of the Air Force has not. You know, even the, even the pilots that are supporting that war, it wasn't really different from what they normally do. You still get in your same cockpit. You're doing you're flying missions. You're not really under threat. You're not really under an air-to-ground threat or an air-to-air -air threat. So you can just fly over there and support the mission on the ground. For that reason, those people that have been part of AFSOC holistically have so much more to offer the Air Force to make it more capable, how to make real hard decisions, how to deal with the, the, the asymmetry of what's happening on a battlefield to make a plan that 
is better than the plan you first made, which never survives first contact as a cliche. But as you go forward and look at what's going to happen to the Air Force, if the Air Force doesn't leverage that, and I fear that they will not, to their own detriment, we are going to be less well positioned to fight a war somewhere in the Strait of Malacca or the South China Sea or 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 somewhere on the you know Eastern European border with Russia. And I would I would say we also probably have more experience uh, working our resilience muscles, you know, to your your current book that's out right now. Uh, way more experience per the uh, you know the general Air Force population of going through. Um, you know, I don't want to say it, but like traumatic experiences and seeing all these things and then working through it as a, as a community. And I think things like your book or even this podcast, when we talk about this kind of stuff, it helps put it out to the, the general public on how to overcome not just the worst of the worst traumatic experiences, but just like you were talking about day to day life and all that other kind of stuff. And obviously I haven't read your new book yet, uh, but is that some of the stuff that you talk about? Yes, it is. And to, and to your point, you know, the reason that what you were just talking about has so much more value to the rest of the Air Force, as you pointed out, but I'll restate it is we've paid the price through resiliency and lack of resiliency. The suicides we've had, the challenges we've had, the destroyed and devastated marriages and, uh, and careers even that come along with that. There's a lot of hardness that comes out of this hard one experience to be victorious because no one does it better than us. We can crush any eye. We're the Air Force. We're the most powerful force in the world. And so, and I also happen to think that AFSOC is the most versatile and powerful service component special operations command that there is. They can go anywhere and do anything by themselves, literally. Doesn't mean they should, doesn't mean they always will, but it means that you can put by guys and girls on the ground you can have the effects you want, you can get there, you can recover them, and you can provide all the other intelligence in a fusion all in one service. Um, but, you know, to resilience, it's funny because, you know, my current book is The Power of Awareness. And it's really, you know, how to use and develop situational awareness to prevent crime as an individual and how to learn to not override your intuition. And you use those as tools, the foundation by which you can prevent yourself from being the victim of a crime. And I feel really strongly about it. I was really excited to, to write this book um, and I'm really excited to be out there working. And in fact, I, I founded an institute with a couple other people who are way more expert, academic PhDs and whatnot, uh, around the principles of my book in order to try and save lives. But what came out of that book, the, there's six rules in the book and I won't bore your readers or your listeners with it. And hopefully they'll pick it up because I think it has value. But the end was how to regroup and recover after something has happened in your life. And that's about resilience. And I felt that even though that's the conclusion of my book and it's the final step of a six step process to identify and avoid crimes and how to recover from near misses or traumatic events, it led to me deciding that I really wanted to write a book about resilience combined with happiness. Because to me, the pursuit of happiness, and this is an Aristotelian thing, it's not about, and, it, and, and Greek philosophers are not rocket science. Like I'm not some really high intellectual as everyone who knows me can attest. But I believe that Aristotle's approach to happiness was you find these things that are greater than you, that you can contribute yourself to, and you give your best efforts to, that you also enjoy. 
That's the Aristotle definition of happiness. And how you do that combined with resilience is how you can really live your fullest life. And it's a strange journey that I wrote alone at dawn, which led me to write The Power of Awareness, which has led me to write this book that I think I feel at this stage of my life as someone who's pretty self-actualized. I've done a lot of things that that people sort of give me credit for being whatever. You know, they think I've done some amazing things. And I just think I'm a middle-aged guy who likes to read books. But I think it's a means to, to go towards what really matters in life. What matters in life is is to find happiness through your job, through your family, through your personal relationships. Man, that's happiness. And uh, everybody deserves that. And I'm and I'm, I'm up here whiteboarding right now. There's three whiteboards running in my office that uh, I've got that book mapped out because I believe in it so strongly. Because in the end, uh, you know, becoming a special operations uh, leader or veteran and being successful, those are just roles you play. Someday you're going to retire. Who are you after that is an important question because if your only identity is I was a PJ, a controller, a tech P, what happens when you're not that person anymore? This is where men and women have a, a hard time on their way out the door from their career because their definition of who they are is their job. And yeah. I maintain that's only the role you play. And it's, it's a hard enough role. Yeah, it's a hard enough transition of leaving your, you know, leaving your career and leaving that comfort zone of the military or, or retiring. Like when you start coupling that with a serious existential crisis, I mean, if you look at somebody that gets in when they're 17 or 18, you're only 40 years old when you're looking at retiring and you're having this no kidding crisis of, okay, well, I'm, I'm this adult with this whole career behind me. Who am I supposed to be now? And I can, I can see that's pretty jarring, especially as I, as I run up really quickly on 20 years and, you know, we're, we're all getting close to that. Uh, you know, I'm way closer to hitting that button for retirement than I am pretty much doing anything else. But for you and finding that happiness, what, what drove you to write Alone at Dawn? Well, so actually, I'd rather take a half a step back before I answer that question, which is this. When you go to retire, to your point, Aaron, it's a scary thing to do. The reason I think it's scary for almost everybody is when you get out, when you, you're losing a sense of identity yourself, but you're forced to re, uh, rebuild yourself. Who am I? You, you're going to start from scratch. And you can take men and women who've survived combat and tell them to charge a machine gun nest or you know, you know, sneak behind enemy lines. But when you say you've got to start at the bottom and start over, that's a really scary thing for people. Um, I happen to believe personally that it's important to try and rush to that and embrace that. So the answer to your question about why Alone at Dawn was I knew I wanted to become a writer because it would force me to be to evolve and become more than I was in some ways, but become different than who I was in many others. So, you know, it doesn't matter. I've got a great little brand that people my, that my publishers and my agents lock onto. Black Hawk Down Dan, World Record Holder, Base Jumper Dan, you know, and and special ops create a squadron out of thin air kind of guy just a couple of light flexes just a couple of light afternoon flexes that's all that is no big but, deal but that's you know what and I appreciate you know that. you know what we call getting world records and being a, a multi-decorated special operations stalwart and, and giant in the career field you call that tuesday mr Schilling. what up well i, I appreciate the compliment but 
I think that's all just, I think that's all just branding because those are just singular events that I happen to do at, at points in my life. Really life's lived daily. And by becoming a writer, it forced me to start from scratch. No one cares about any of that branding stuff in the publishing world. If I can't put a story on the page. So for me, and this is just only my only personal journey. It was, I can be can continue to evolve as a human to be more than I was, I hope, to be happier and more satisfied than I was in the past. Because I struggled with that a lot, man. Don't get yourself. A lot of self-doubt. I have a, I, I'm insecure about my writing. I, I'm still overcoming that. And I became a New York Times bestselling author and I'm still insecure about writing. And so, you know, those are the kinds of things for me that I figure I can do the rest of my life. Because I'm not going to be an action guy. I'll, I'll speed fly when I'm 85. I, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Because uh, it's not hard <laughs> on your just knees. Awesome. It's, it's that's easy just on cool. your knees. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly what I'd be worrying about. As an 85-year-old attached to a parachute careening down a mountain is, boy, I sure hope this is easy on my knees so I can continue to do it. You should think about that. That's my point, man. Because like, it needs to be easy on your knees at 85. Like, like trying to land. I'm going to get sushi this afternoon. I'm picking a suit up. That's about as exciting as I get. I'm going to a really nice sushi restaurant in Seattle. Shout out to um, that girl, Nicole something for hooking this sushi joint up. But uh, that's, that's about as fast as I get. You know what else is easy on the knees? Just having a hot sake and a couple of pieces of nigiri. Delicious. Or reading a book. Reading a book. I I got it. Yeah, I do dig that. Yeah. But, you know, so for, for I think it's important that people realize that I think it's important for people to realize they can become something different and they be, can become something even better than what they were before. Just because you finished a military career, maybe it was a stellar career. Maybe you're Mike Martin and you're a two star general. You know, maybe you're Staff Sergeant X and you were only in for five years. It doesn't matter. It's what you do next. I think you can you can always find something more in your life. And I think that's part of resilience. And that's what I want to talk about with my next book is, is how to help people find that and not just define resilience as balance, bouncing back from something bad. I think resilience is how you can go all the way forward to find something that self-actualizes you and even helps you find love. I happen to think love is an underappreciated word. Oh, I, I mean, I think what we'll find is you know, uh, the DOD, the VA and everything, and, and even, you know, um, act, current active duty and guard will, will soon find um, kind of the, the result of, you know, 20 years of conflict, of straight conflict um, and struggle with it. I, I, think, I think, you know, you had brought up all these suicides and stuff like that. I think this is probably just the beginning of what we're going to see. And, you know, with World War One, two. Korea, Vietnam, like we didn't really know how to identify it. We didn't have the data, you know, we, we hadn't, we could see it, but we didn't really know what it was all about. But now that, you know, we've gotten smarter with it, I, I think we're going to start seeing a lot more of it. And uh, hopefully with technology and, and actually being open and willing to discuss, you know, mental health resilience. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure it's mental health month right now. Yeah, it actually, um, like, it actually so, is. Like it's, it's yeah. a good topic, but like that's something that's really important. And it's not something that we've had the technology and the knowledge and the willingness to discuss um, until now. And, and I mean, the next 10 years is going to be very telling. Um, and if, you know, it's, it's good that you're 
looking at and focused on it right now because, um, and I know that there's a lot of people on it, uh, yeah. looking at it right now, but it's, it's yeah, we had become a, a worse issue um, here in the next 10 years, I believe. I have I have nothing to go off of from that. Like, this right. is just my opinion. Just, but. A, just a feeling of, I mean, you know, it, everything always happens, right? Like this last this last deployment, I got home and my shoulder was, I've needed work on my shoulder for a long time. I got home from this last deployment and my flight doc and I were joking. We're like, I don't know how many miles I had on this shoulder, but the second that I got back off that deployment, kind of took a rest, took my two weeks of leave and took some time off, my shoulder was just went, I'm like, man, is this, this has to happen now, right? Like now my shoulder hurts all the time. But I think we're going to see the same sort of thing. We're going to take this knee and we're going to get some time off. And I think we are going to see some of those things pop up. One really good thing that I loved hearing from you, Dan, is is starting to move that process left to bang, if you will. We had a great sit down with Chief Master Sergeant Nathan Cox. He's down uh, at the the uh, AFSPEC War Training Group right now. So, Nate uh, Cox. Yeah, yeah. You should talk oh, to him about his, really well. yeah, yeah. You should talk to Nate about his mental armor brief. Uh, he his his mental armor. I mean, he he essentially has explained it like you know we have all of these other things. He's you know speaking about resilience. We do all these other things way left to bang right. Like you don't just show up to an NFL combine with not having you know weeks months and years of preparation, mental health should be the same thing. You should be working those mental health, those resiliency muscles long before you ever need them so that you're resilient when you're, when you're there, you know, he, he likens it to, you know, giving a guy body armor, you know, way before the fight, not after he's had an issue. So I, I hear a lot of that from you speaking about this new book and, and resilience is, is moving that stuff left to bang and, and really what are some other things for resilience that you would you'd want people to start working on now to prepare themselves for those bad times? So I think, uh, man, we're actually getting into the heart of that book, but it goes back to something that that uh, Jared. We're going to cover too. the whole thing out here right now, and then the <laughs> book the book is going to come out, and you're just going to be like, it's the audio book, it's the the ones ready Dan Schilling narrated audio book. It'll be great. Uh, yeah, I hope it helps make people. I hope it saves lives. I hope it makes people resilient, and I hope it makes them happy. Um, but you know, something that that Jared had said, you know, it, it's just for now is when I think we're going to find there's a. I think we're going to find a lot of residual damage amongst our veterans. I think it takes time to manifest. This is my personal experience. You know, a lot of people go back to Black Hawk Down, and and so it's an easy talking point because it's a it's a popular reference because people know it so much you know man i really struggled with stuff um at during periods of my life and it took a long time to manifest itself like I, I i will tell you suicide was a real possibility for me and so i don't want to dig into that so much because you know we're covering a lot of ground here but one of the things i realized is these things take time they don't happen overnight you don't come back from your deployment and suddenly decide i think i'm just going to eat a bullet now sometimes but I think mostly for people, it's a compounding thing because your relationships are falling apart after the fact because you're still processing the things and you don't know how to deal with them. And you don't trust the mental health community because it scares you to talk to mental health people, which I got to tell you, a person who saved my life in a very real sense was a LCSW when I was trying to go through marriage counseling a couple marriages ago for me, um, who told me some things about myself that I would not have known otherwise. Actually, she told me I wasn't a sociopath because I was actually worried that I might be, <laughs> I might have this problem. That's a real and concern. I, can, I laugh about it now. And it's funny too, because like, she's like, you're not a sociopath. And I said, well, why aren't I? She says, because sociopaths don't ask that question. So I'm like, all right, that's pretty good. And like, that was an epiphany, but you have to do those things and they take time 
to, to explore and process and overcome. And, uh, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take time for these men and women who've slogged it out in the trenches with more combat experience than any veterans in human in American history. Our 20 years of special operations people have more combat experience than veterans of World War II. That's a, that's a heavy burden. I want them to be healthy and I want them to be happy. Now, for me, I want to reach everybody. I want people around the world to be happy. I, I transcend politics and nationalism. I don't care where you come from. I don't want you to be a victim of crime. And, uh, you know, and I don't want you to be somebody who is, is unhealthy. And that's kind of my purpose in life with the things I do. I will tell you in my own personal journey, I got to that by becoming Buddhist when I was working in Thailand for several years. That's a strange journey for a guy like me to find himself sitting in a temple on a back street in downtown Bangkok in a kind of crappy part of town. And I've got, a, there's this really special temple to me out there. That's nothing special to anybody else. And uh, man, those are the kind of things that allow you to move forward in your life where you have an experience like, like that. And your experience, those of you listening, it can be anything. It could be a conversation where you reconnect with your spouse. It can be seeing your child do something really great for the first time gives you a purpose to move forward in your life. To me, those are the most valuable things in life. It's not base jumping or shooting a gun. Well, it goes and, back to uh, what you were talking about with the identity thing, though, right? You, we, we get so wrapped up in this identity of, you know, being a controller SR, what, PJ, what am I Tech supposed B, like to be? It, How am I supposed yeah. to look? What, what then, role am I supposed to play? Right. And then we, you know, we've been living this for X, X amount of years, whether you're like you said, whether you're doing five years, whether you're doing 30 years, you know, uh, and then all of a sudden it's gone. And this, you know, we, we've talked about the, uh, community of friendships and, and lifelong friends that, you know, you cannot talk to for 10 years for whatever reason. And you pick right back up where you thought, I mean, people that will like, what do you need? What do you need in your life? How right now? wonderful is that? That's it's one amazing. of the greatest things about being the four people in this conversation and any, all the men and women who've done what we do. One of the greatest residual values is that bond is is stronger than family almost all the time. At least it is for me. And so, you know, to have that is just, man, what a great what a great thing to have in your life. I was and, getting, uh, but, I know, was getting I, a haircut. I, I, don't like, I don't like roles. I don't like identities. There's a reason I don't put lieutenant colonel on the jackets of my book because that's what <laughs> I was. Or that's, my, that's what I was. It's not who I am. I'm not a lieutenant colonel anymore. I'm just a dude who writes books and hangs out with his wife. That's what I like to do and read a lot. I, I was no kidding. I was no kidding getting a haircut here in, in Tacoma. So I was down, I, I went to a float tank, uh, which is one of my favorite things to do for resiliency. But then I was getting a haircut cause I, I had to go do this thing. So I had to make sure my hair was, was nice. But through talking to the, the um, woman cut my hair, she was married to a combat controller. Like we started talking about it and we had all these things in common. She said, yeah, I met my, my husband in Vegas and he had worked overseas a little bit before. And so we start talking and she goes, yeah, no kidding. He was a combat controller. And I, the, one of the first thing I said, it was like, Hey, I don't know if he wants to reconnect, but he probably knows one or two people that I work with. He has an open invite to come down to the two, two STS. You tell him if he wants to come down and hang out with the guys and see what we're doing in the ST world, if he has any desire to, um, you should tell him he's got an open invite and, you know, 
tell them to come look for myself or I, I put chief peach's name out there, but that is the bond that we have like that. That really helps too. I know intimately, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be the oldest of four brothers, um, all in the military, all serving active duty. So two helicopter wow. pilots. Yeah. It, it's pretty good. Pretty good story. Northeast so they're Ohio. smarter than you are. Is what way we're smarter, <laughs> way smarter. And I was the first one that got in. Like I picked the best branch <laughs> and the best job, but they got in and they're, they're, you know, experienced, uh, warrant officer, uh, helicopter pilot, 60 pilots. So, um, way smarter than me, both of them. So Aaron, I want to add something that, in fact, this is timely because, uh, one of my great heroes is Mike LaMonica, retired combat control chief, because he may not have any hair, but he's still a badass. And, um, he's, you know, one of the things that's happened in the combat control community that hadn't happened before the, the pararescue association, I think had always been robust and oh, yeah. I think it yep. always did a lot for their own community. And the Combat Control Association didn't really do that. It was really come have some beers in Fort Walton Beach and tell war stories, which sure. has value. And you, and you can reconnect fun. like we talked about. But we actually have started a Combat Control Foundation to get an endowment to provide the kind of support to the Combat Control community that like Pararescue in particular has enjoyed. And I think the TAC-P Association um, has done a, a pretty good job of too. I can't speak for the SR guys because I yeah think the Gray Beret Association is out there as well. I know that they've get, been getting that going. Yeah, and and I I think for us um, we're finally making efforts to get enough to raise awareness and raise funds to have the kind of foundation that can support guys like the the buddy you're talking about through you know the hairstylist husband who was a combat controller. Uh, there's a lot of guys out there struggling, and I think combat controllers in particular more so than the other four AFSCs that we're generally concerned with here or the officer corps that we're concerned with, they kill a lot of people, I think, in this longest war. And I think killing people, and I talk about this when I give keynote speeches, killing people while justified in war and it's part of your purpose, if you're a guy like I was or some of you guys, is a net negative life experience. It doesn't advance you as a human, in my opinion. Oh, for I sure. think it, it diminishes yeah, there's, there's you a toll. in some way. And it goes back to what Jared was saying, you know, 10 years from now. And, uh, man, I really worry about these guys who've killed a lot of people because I think it carries, it leaves a, a residual presence that you can't get rid of. That's my experience. And I haven't even killed that many people. Well, I think with, with everything, <clears throat> It leaves cracks, right? With 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 all of these experiences, we we build each other up, we build ourselves up, and we put all this this armor on to go out and do the job. Um, and, and and to my personal experiences, every time like something has happened and I I crack later on, that ends up being a positive opportunity to let stuff in that I wouldn't have let in before, or to or to see life in a different way. And yeah, while it's while it's hard and all this other stuff, I think the resilience uh, for me is when your your outer layer cracks, right? And I don't know how else to explain it when you go through these things. Because, uh, you know, we view ourselves as, as hard guys that do hard things. And you, you I don't want to say it's a facade all the time, but sometimes it gets a little brittle and you go through these things and then you open up a little bit. And those experiences are, are rough, um, you know, when, when you first break it open. But I think if you can come through the other side with the support of your your family, your team family, your brothers and your sisters that you work with and everybody else, I think you can come out stronger. I think that the, the act of killing is, is a negative, but I think the experience is you can come out on the other side with the proper amount of support, uh, maybe a stronger and better person with a different perspective on life. 
I agree a hundred percent. And I think, I, I actually think going to war does help forge part of your resilience and you can evolve into something that you never would have been for having not had the experience if you didn't join the military and didn't go to war. But I think to your point, and this goes back to what Nate Cox was doing. And you guys were talking about Nate and I'm a big fan of Nate's and I don't know about his. Everybody uh, is. The, He's his, got that gunmetal hair. His eyes are like an electric blue. He's always got man. like a male model face. I, I can't take, I deployed. Nate was um, my first team leader. We went to Iraq together a, a lifetime ago. And uh, that guy, I just get lost in his eyes. I'm not going to lie about it. It's just, I hear music every time I see Chief Cox. I'm just like, we were lucky enough to work here. He got a he got a bad deal. He was only here in the Northwest for, because it was a, a wacky way the Chief cycle worked out. But he was only here for about nine months. But I, I got to be honest, every time he comes into my, my office, I heard music. And it was like, Dreamweaver. It was just. He's kind of hot. He really have, is. I don't know if that. I go so far as to say hot. I think now this is a bridge too far, like because I still gotta like, kind of work with him. Uh, but yeah, no, I his his mental armor briefing. I, I've always connected, especially you know we share a, a love of jujitsu and a love of fighting. And I and I heard yeah, him that's reference, big for him. Yeah, Krav Maga and finding those martial arts and finding those ways to 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 be part of something. But yeah, I, you know we we uh, had him on. We'll we'll link the uh, we'll link his his podcast that he did with us over the mental armor brief. But I know he's he's working hard down in uh, San Antonio. Well, in fact, I was just down there this week, uh, so I, I didn't get a chance to go over there to the wing because I, I went down there for a fundraiser kind of thing. But I, I think I want to come back to what we were talking about uh, right before you were talking about uh, you know Nate's dreamy eyes. Um, so good looking. I just this. don't know. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt talking about no, how the guy was. It's, it's totally good because we're just talking about all this stuff. <laughs> there comes a point when, you know, we're talking, you were talking about the body armor and how we carry that stuff. And we are hard guys who've done hard things. And that's true. I happen to believe, though, that next step and the ultimate step is you take that body armor off. If you take the body armor off because you can, that signifies that you are on this next part of your life. Maybe I say it because I'm a middle-aged dude with white hair, but the bottom line is you, you do have to, if you don't ever take the body armor off, you're living in a state of combat. That's defensive. That's why it's called armor. It's there to protect you. To evolve, I think you have to move past that to reach your full potential. Otherwise, you're living your whole life in conflict and combat because conflict and combat are synonyms in this case. And so, uh, you know, for me, that's where I want to go with my writing. And that's where I want to go with influencing people. I'm still on a journey to, to change the public's view of the Air Force with a book and a movie. That's never going to go away. I'm really dedicated to that. I spent 30 years, you know, almost 31 in uniform. But how do, but, how do you want to change it? If, if you could get, I mean, if you could boil it down and be like, this is what I want people to see the Air Force for, like, you know, the, and, you know, 30 years of, of your work. What does that look easy. like? They, they recognize that the Air Force is the most powerful force ever created on planet Earth. And they look at combat controllers and special ops from the, the Air Force as the end, deadliest individuals to ever walk a battlefield in the history of human warfare. That's it. So let's do things. Hoo-yah. Deadliest force in the world. I don't use the H word much, but hoo-yah, man. I'm, man, I'm, I'm all <laughs> in for that. And you should be because you're one of those guys. That's my point. Like, we already yeah. exist. I don't have to convince anybody. I just like to say those words out to people. Hey, if you can't make it in that community, go be something else. 
But the fact is, is these are the deadliest individuals to walk the battlefield in the history of human warfare. Because we kill more people. And because we can. And we do. And we have. And that's just the way of things. You know, I like to talk about the passage in my book on Alone and Dawn. I think it's page 66. It's the first time you meet Calvin Markham. Goes across the border with one of the first two ODAs that go in. And he killed more people in his first 26 days of combat than any SEAL in history. And it was his first time in combat. And he had 11 deployments. Yikes. This begs the question, was he the enabler? Or were the SEALs the enabler for him believe, in yeah. that mission? Because I think sometimes we get those uh, those words confused. Supporting and supported. I believe right. I know which one that one uh, that gentleman was. So here's the great answer. Here's my here's what I like to be able to say to that. I don't give a shit about the word supported and supporting. You know what? That stuff changes all the time, and it all depends on how you want to state the situation. It's like a statistic. Statistics can say anything you want. Ask Mark Twain. He said there were lies, damned lies. And there are statistics. What he really meant is you can manipulate them any way that you want. So I don't really give a shit about capturing it that way. What I say is it's part of the plan to go forward and kill the bad guys. The key guy was a combat controller. It wasn't the Green Beret ODA. They were there to interact with the locals and build that coalition. They were there to provide the fire support for that combat controller. You can say it any way you want. Neither one of those diminishes the other party's role, combat control versus special forces. I'm not here to establish primacy. I'm saying the deadliest guy in any of those situations is the combat controller. That's all I'm saying. I love Green Berets. I spent seven years in the Army Special Forces. Like, you know, I I used to change services like I changed wives for a period of my life. So the bottom line (laughs) is, like, I'm not here to say who is better. What I can say, and I like to say it definitively, the deadliest individual to walk a battlefield in the history of human warfare and can be in the future still is a combat controller. That's all I'm saying. But I love Green Berets. And as, my as, the kids would, as the kids would say, no cap. That's just straight facts. That's no cap. That's just as that is what it is. And the Air Force is the deadliest force ever created by humanity because it owns two thirds of the U.S.'s nuclear triad. We may not have as many warheads as the Russians. But quality control matters with a nuclear warhead. You got to get it to go somewhere and you have to get it to go off. And the Russians don't do that very well militarily, in my experience, as the Cold War will tell us. And so what they do is they throw millions of people at problems. That's very different than how we solve problems. You know, so when it comes back to why should we as Air Force members feel and act differently than we do, because we're the deadliest force ever created even though we haven't unleashed that force thank god you know we've only ever detonated in 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 conflict two atomic weapons it's that we are that force but the air force is a force for good oh absolutely absolutely i mean you you can look at all the hatter missions we do the humanitarian assistance uh, disaster relief missions we do all the way back from katrina to um Oh, now I'm going to forget all the hurricane names. Ty K mean, Rescue, did, yeah. Hurricane Andrew. We were there with Katrina. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah, I was there for, for hurricanes, Rico. Rita and Ike. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, there's just like really great stuff. Puerto Rico, Haiti. I mean, Haiti just happened, you know. Um, so it's, like it's not limited to comment. For the, the 2010 Haiti collapse, Tony Travis, 
an Air Force NCO was one of Time Magazine's 100 most, most influential people of the year. The only enlisted service member ever recognized. Why? Because he led the international effort to introduce relief to a nation on behalf of the entire world. Pow. And he did it with a handful of other NCOs, PJs and combat controllers, one ATV and a folding card table. So see, see now, so now you're going to get me into something that I, I just read an article, and, and this is something that um, I, I have not personally experienced, but it's going to be interesting to hear your um, take on it. Since you know you you retired as an officer, and you know you're obviously on here with, but don't hold uh, that against me. I'm not. We have to a handful, <laughs> a handful of podcast. you know it's a, a handful <laughs> of um, senior CEOs and. You know, the, the private sector, the civilian sector, they view officers and enlisted different. Like you think that it's a officer and enlisted, you know, disparity within active duty, but I'd actually say there's even less of that now. But private sectors still look at it as like, oh, I don't care if he retired as a chief. He was still enlisted. He doesn't know how to make decisions. He doesn't know how to lead. Whereas, he doesn't know strategy. Exactly. Whereas an officer, you know, whether it's a retired, it could be a retired major, lieutenant colonel, could be a GO. Um, you know, they're automatically viewed as that. And their pay and position title is um, correlated with that. And it's, it's something I agree. that I think we've got to get. Like the private sector's got to get past that. Like, yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, we have we have the most educated enlisted force ever now. Well, when you and when you look at what the private sector often wants, they want somebody that can manage multiple different peoples, do project management, smooth out logistics, change, really forecast around. They don't want stri- strategic leadership and vision is great, but having somebody that's with right. the, that's with the not clarity, what they need. right? They they need they need somebody. They need a senior NCO. They just don't know what they don't know. They don't know they how to don't ask. Don't know for what it. they don't know, and I think. I think it's harder um, because, uh, you know, in the Air Force, as a writ large force, is a technical force. So the vast majority of NCOs in the Air Force are are technical experts in things, whether it's logistics or some sort of technology or some sort of systems type thing. Whereas the more well-rounded individual as a senior NCO from a from from a leadership standpoint, dealing with duress and dealing with stress and dealing with resilience, they really come out of the AFSOC community. And that, but then again, that could be the flying community or special tactics and special warfare. It doesn't matter because they've dealt with that in a very real way. But the people on the outside don't they don't understand that because they they equate rank with capability. So you, if you're a two star general, you retire. They think you have great vision. And you may, but you may also just be somebody who did well in that system. And so you get, Hey, Hey, you know, I can you hear you. I, I, I'm well aware why I made E8. I just stayed in long enough. I passed some tests. I got it. You don't need to be that right. mean to me, Mr. Schilling. Jeez. <laughs> well, so, you know, you have to think about that stuff. Mike LaMonica, to go back to a guy I greatly admire, man, he's the senior leader at one of the largest technology companies in the world. Like he's a top guy. And he was a chief master sergeant. And what he did was, I, I to sort of summarize his his journey after he was a chief uh, in less than thirty seconds. He got jobs that he allowed that allowed him to show his project management and personnel leadership skills, which is what all three of you guys have from your experience too inside the military. 
And then he just kept parlaying that into higher orders of magnitude, of broader responsibility or more significant value and attending risk for those corporations till such a point where they're like, these other guys from the Wharton School of Business are great, but Mike LaMonica can lead people and strategize and unjack up a logistics train. And for that reason, in a meritocracy, which is what corporations in the end mostly are, sometimes it's insider baseball. And if you went to Harvard, it's who you know, and you're going to move up that chain because you are a smart person. But the meritocracy produces leaders at the, at the higher echelon in the C-suites that everyone likes to aspire to. Michael Monica is an example of the kind of guy who can make that happen in the corporate world. Yeah, and he was a phenomenal leader when he was in active duty. I, he put me through combat control school, um, and I love talking with that guy. So blow he made mind. one mistake. Yeah. Put him Which through. Is, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. Well, we went through our whole pipeline together. I met Mike LaMonica as a scrawny 19-year-old from Delaware. Who, I don't think he'd even been out of his state. And I, and I think about our time together going through Indoc and the entire pipeline. And our, our careers sort of diverged and then paralleled again, as it often happens with people you know and, and really admire uh, that you start out with. But at, at the end of the day, you know, here's a guy with four combat jumps. Man. Guys, I'm telling you, you, you haven't met him. If you haven't met him, he's amazing. Well, he could have had a fifth combat jump because some RRD guys from the Ranger Regiment were trying to go on this mission. I think it was in Pakistan. Anyway, back during the war. And it was a jump mission. And they're like, we want you. And Mike's like, no, I'm busy doing this stuff. I can get you another guy. And they're like, no, no, we want you because you're Mike LaMonica. And Mike literally said to them, if I get another combat jump, there are people who will kill me. I'll have five. And I can't do that to the rest of the guys. And he turned down the mission. He, man, he's, he's phenomenal, guys. He, in fact, I, I'm, I'm going to text him after this just to tell him that we were talking about him. But he's, he's awesome. But, Dan, um, as we're kind of getting to the point where we wrap it up, um, you have a whole lot of insight. And this has been enjoyable. Like, I mean, I really think that we could probably pull a, a Joe Rogan and, and do this for three hours easily. But, um, you know, if you're not familiar with our demographic, we've, you know, we're hitting 16 to 35 year olds generally who are interested in Air Force Special Warfare. So, and we kind of asked this question on, uh, on giving some advice, at least from your point of view to those, that demographic um, as parting shots, what would you give to them in terms of advice? Well, advice in the context of they know they, they want to get into special warfare. I'd say this, you have to know how badly you want it. And it doesn't matter what the setback is. I had friends who broke their legs and had to restart the pipeline and come over again, or you failed whatever test. I, I truly believe there is always a way. And if there's, and if it's not this way, it's some other way and you just have to keep finding it. And there's, you know, it's a, which is, you know, persistence alone is all that matters. You know, education can be folly and, you know, intelligence can be squandered, all these other things. And I agree with that because what matters most is just tenacity. You just can't give up. Listen, I, I was not a writer naturally in high school. I was a, 
spastic guy. I can't even believe I graduated from high school, frankly speaking. And then later on, I went and got three college degrees. But it's all about that evolution. You just have to keep not quitting. And for me, man, you know, I could not get an agent when I wanted to become a writer. And no one ever can. It's really hard to get an agent. And I, people turned me down over and over and over and over again until we guy. And, you know, when you know you want to be a PJ or a TAC P or whatever, it is, or a Stowe or a Crow, whatever it is you're trying to do, man, you just have to, have to not quit and find other people who don't quit because they'll get you through in your darkest hour. Mike LaMonica and I have a really strong bond and friendship based on our time at the OLH. And maybe you can interview him sometime and he can tell you about how that all went in the interest of time. But the fact is you can't quit and you have to find the other people that you want to be around who aren't going to quit either. And that's how you'll get there. Seems like a common thing that we've talked about in the, in the two years we've been up and running and with every single guest we've had, do not quit. Don't give up on yourself. Don't index yourself. Just keep driving on. So, and find other people who are also doing mm -hmm. the same thing. I think yeah. that's maybe something I can add to that, which is you glom onto other people who are high performing and self-actualized or you admire and aspire to be like, and they could be younger than you. Doesn't, it's no, it's just the people you're with. Who's that one man or woman who's got it dialed in? Stick with that person. Yep. Surround yourself with greatness. Absolutely. Well, Dan, we really appreciate you joining us today. We definitely want to have you on again because you've got some golden nuggets, but I definitely want to plug your books. Um, if you haven't checked out Alone at Dawn, it's phenomenal. Great book. Um, and, and we we only scratch the surface, but please go out there and read it. You can find it on our website. And then also Dan's newest book, The Power of Awareness. Um, I think we're going to put that one on our website too, because that one's a, a good read. And then when do you anticipate your next one coming out? Uh, I'll probably be out in 23. 23? Writing books is a slow problem. I'm, I'm spending this year collecting information on, on resilience and happiness. And uh, so, but uh, yeah, it'll be, it'll be probably summer of 23, I think, before that book comes out. But in the meantime, everybody listening should buy many copies of both of those other books. Of course. Buy all of them all. All of them. <laughs> yeah, buy them for people you love. I'm just kidding, man. Listen to everybody who's listening. If you're trying to get in, uh, I wish you the best of luck, man, and I wish you victory on a battlefield. Absolutely. All right. Well, looks like we're having some uh, calm issues now. <laughs> it's probably a good thing that it happened when it did. So, Dan, Blame again. It on the controller. Exactly. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> That ain't fair. All right. So to everybody out there, appreciate you guys tuning in. Leave us some feedback, reviews, five stars, subscribe, do all that kind of stuff. Um, hit us in our direct messages on Instagram or email and uh, go out there and train hard. Later, everybody. Later, y'all.